attention is fundamental to everything that our brain does. Um, and, and there's so many different types of attention. I could easily talk a, an hour about attention, all the different times, top down and bottom up, sustained attention, selective attention. And it's just uh, infinitely fascinating. That was a little audio snippet from my dear friend, Adam Ghazali. Now, Adam is a previous guest on the show and it's been five years though. And in that five years, a bunch of remarkable stuff has happened. Adam is a neuroscientist. He's an author, a photographer, and essentially he's the inventor of an amazing new technology, the first ever FDA-approved video game as medicine. Now, if you're not a video gamer or you're not interested in medicines, don't, don't, don't hang up on us here because what he also is is one of the most articulate and leading scientists in the space of neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to change and adapt and grow, attention, where we place our attention, whether you have attention deficit or you're seeking to get deeper into something, and specifically um, medicine for the mind. So he is so genuine a uh, human and so adroit at explaining this stuff that today's episode is super dense but in a really good way. Like you just, you feel like you just, um, I don't know, went for an amazing jog, had some good exercise. And uh, the conversation that we have is wide ranging. We do focus on a couple of buckets. Again, this bucket of attention, which is something I'm obsessed with because, you know, attention is one of the few things we actually have in this world. His specific medicine around video games as a literal prescribable thing and what the future of medicine looks like. And then, of course, the the brain's ability to learn and adapt, which is huge and core to the things that our community is interested in, in, you know, self-improvement and, you know, all these other things. So today's episode is a whopper. Uh, and again, it's from my friend, uh, Adam Ghazali, neuroscientist, author, photographer, inventor, founder of Neuroscape, which is a research center at UCSF, uh, where he is a distinguished professor. Uh, he's also the founder of a publicly traded company called Akili, which is uh, pioneering this this digital medicine that we talk a little bit about. So very broad ranging, very, very rich episode today. I can't wait for you to continue to listen to Mr. Dr. Adam Ghazali. Dr. Adam Ghazali is back in the house after a five-year hiatus Good doctor, welcome back to the show. Congratulations on all your success since the last time we talked. What a ride it's been. Welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. It's great to see your face again. After so long, the world's been flipped upside down, turned inside out, and uh, it feels good to be connecting again. Oh, indeed. Uh, in preparation for our conversation today, I was reviewing the last time you were on the show, which was some five years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was also scrolling through my phone, looking back at photographs of your lab at UCSF. Uh, and for those who might not be familiar with you and your work, I'd love to start out today's show with you just giving a, I mean, again, I'll, I'll do the fancy intro later, but just give us, you know, orient us in the world that you work and live in and uh, help us understand in your own words why 
why you'd be a guest on the show here. Sure. Well, um, I do. I wear a lot of hats, so I'll try to break it down. Um, two main hats that we'll probably spend our time talking about are, are my academic hat and my industry side. Um, so as an academic, I am an MD, PhD. I'm a full-time professor here at University of California, San Francisco, where I'm talking to you now. I run a research center that used to be my lab. Now it's become a center called Neuroscape. We're probably transitioning around the last time we talked, 2017. And we do some really what I think is interesting and hopefully important work on the intersection of technology and neuroscience um, to translate neuroscience beyond the laboratory into people's lives and to have tools for us to better understand our brains and better improve our brain function. So that's on one side. On the other side, I'm a co-founder and, and board member and science advisor for a company called Achille. And Achille is a company that is uh, distributing for developing, validating, and now delivering um, a unique digital um, video game medicine that was originally um, designed by myself and, and developed and validated at UCSF and now is with the company and is going out um, as we speak as a very unique treatment for children with ADHD. So that's a little bit of the high level. <laughs> <laughs> and let me translate that for the rest of us. Adam has a very large brain and, <laughs> and he puts it to use doing very, very interesting things. I have long been fascinated with neuroscience and the intersection of uh, neurology, our, you know, our experience of life. And I think I, we were originally introduced um, back at, at your lab and I remember touring it when a lot of this stuff was, I would call it sort of in production and mm -hmm. hadn't been fully, you know, hadn't, hadn't seen the market yet. And sure. I remember hearing, you know, you would founded Achille, you said, uh, this was five years ago, you've recently gone public. So again, congratulations on that. Okay. I mean, that was a 14 year journey, as I understand it. And Correct. this vision of 14 years ago, having ostensibly video games as a form of medication, which is now recognized and validated by the FDA. Can you help us understand the A, sort of the applications and B, how, help us wrap our mind around the future of digital medicine? Yeah, there's so much there. Definitely uh, more <laughs> than we'll probably cover in, in this time, but I'm, I'm happy to start dipping into that. Sure, yeah. You, know, you, you did mention 14 years ago, which always makes me sort of project myself back into time where I was on this campus, um, uh, not actually in this building, which wasn't built then, uh, but on this campus at UCSF. And I would say the idea that drove me 14 years ago in 2008 um, was really one out of need and one out of what I thought was opportunity. And the need was that we have been doing what I think is a pretty horrendous job. And by we, I mean like our whole species, like the, the human kind in terms of supporting and enhancing human cognition, broadly defined. In, in the case in 2008, what I was mostly focusing on was attention. And that's because my research was focused on attention. And I was focused on attention in older adults. And my research showed that as we get older, um, and older basically meaning older than 23 years old, we're, we're not able to deploy our attentional 
um, abilities the way we were when we were younger. And this has a whole host of consequences on how we interact with the world and live our lives. And we didn't really have a solution for it. And so that, that was my particular interest. But the bigger problem is broader than that. When it comes to depression, stress regulation, mood regulation in general, memory, perception, how we feel, empathy, compassion. I mean, this is what's all sort of evolved over the years. We're really lacking in tools to improve those things. And in terms of opportunity, as a, as a neurologist, when we think about how might we improve these capacities of our mind so that we could live better lives, we tend to think, where's the drug for that? Because that's what medicine is. Like when I went to medical school, is basically medicine equals drug. And so which, which is the drug that turns on memory and stops trauma from PTSD? And we, we don't really have those drugs, right? We have reasonable things that manage symptoms in some people, but our, what I call a cognition crisis that I think we're facing globally is getting worse, right? While, while you see improvements in things like oncology and even infectious disease, despite the fact of the pandemic, which we actually manage incredibly well globally, considering how quickly we're able to generate vaccines. But when it comes to medicines for the mind, we just don't really have great solutions. And we see the pandemic has just aggravated that, especially in children and seniors. Um, but 14 years ago, obviously that didn't happen. I was still quite alarmed by the lack of tools that we have as physicians in helping patients that are suffering all these conditions of the mind. And so on the opportunity side, it was what, what I was interested in was thinking beyond the pill. How could we harness the fact that our brain has this property known as neuroplasticity, meaning it changes itself, its structure, its chemistry, its function, every aspect of its physiology and, and functioning based upon its interactions with the world experience. And so the idea was, can we deliver an experience in a targeted and personalized way to an individual such that we can improve their attention abilities. And if you're thinking about delivering an experience, um, can we do it digitally so that it's more accessible, more adaptable? And if you're thinking about a digital experience and you want someone to engage in it deeply and for a long period of time, I was thinking about a video game, right? We want fun, we want enjoyment, we want play. And so that was like the beginning of the idea. You know, fast forward 14 years later, we built that game first here at UCSF and ran a series of sort of foundational studies on it and published it in Nature. We've talked about this last time, and that's a you know, cover of Nature, which was where we were in 2013. It's like the cover of Rolling Stones for, for my musician friends. And it was an incredibly exciting moment. And not that we said, here we go, we have a solution for, for you, world. It was that we have a signal that we were able to develop something quite unique as a video game and show that we can improve cognitive abilities outside of the game. But it was just the beginning. First of all, the game was essentially a prototype of a game. It was nothing, I mean, it was great for a lab to build, but it was nothing that people would actually want to play for any amount of time. And the level of validation was still very small, even though it was in nature, it was a small, and it was um, a you know, very focused population of older adults. And there was a lot of work to be done. And so, over the years, I've been trying to move this technology and these discoveries outside of the laboratory into industry because to truly translate, you can't just keep it locked in academics. It's just not what academics is good for. We don't scale products to get it to people. And then over the last decade, Achille has been A, making a way better game, preserving the underlying game engine because that is the active ingredient of our game and it's defined by a patent 
which really describes the methodology. So that's critical. That's like, you know, the, you know, from the pharmaceutical world, like the active ingredient, the molecule version of the interactive experience. But around that, we can build art, music, story, characters, feedback, reward cycles, all the things that make game, that make games so wonderful. And so a lot of Achilles has been building an amazing game experience. And then the other side has been supporting multiple research trials. And as a company with a game that we know targets attention abilities, we're, we're a startup. You have to be focused. You can't help everyone. The FDA only gives indications for very narrow clinical um, populations. They don't say, here's something that the FDA is going to prove for attention in anyone that's suffering attention. I wish that was true. That is not the case. So you have to pick very precisely and then do a multiple year, multi-site, double blind, randomized control trial to show that you hit your predefined endpoints. It's like a baseball player, like calling, I'm going to hit a home run right now and then doing it, right? You have to call it up front. We did that. And the population we selected was children with ADHD um, for lots of reasons. It's a population in great need. A lot of parents and kids do not want to be on the current medication, which are stimulants largely. And so that was our target population. Our trial was successful. We submitted it to the FDA for approval as a class two medical device to treat this population. And since we last talked in 2020, so like right in, in the heart of COVID, the FDA cleared this for treatment for children as a medical as a medical uh, uh, device. And so essentially it is the first ever FDA approved video game for any medical condition. In this case, it happens to be for ADHD. And then over the last couple of years, we've been exploring how do we now deliver a completely new type of medicine to children um, that they download on their devices. And we are in, uh, we're wrapping up what I guess I'd call a soft launch um, and now launching this quarter for real. Um, but we already have many children who are not participants in research studies, but are actually playing their medicine right now. And I've talked to these kids and it's just an amazing time for us. So that's a little summary of the last 14 years. And since we <laughs> as fast as I can do it. Dude, genius, like a laser <laughs> beams. Thank you so much. That's as accurate as you have to be with the FDA on your proposing a trial. Um, Okay, there are three circles that I just was drawing in my mind. One, a very practical one. The second one is for what you've just laid out there, I think is fascinating for potential sufferers or our, I'll just call it attention, whether mm -hmm. that's attention deficit or how we direct our attention. Mm -hmm. And then there's the brain piece, our neuroplasticity, mm -hmm. like what implications that you have come to understand mm -hmm. as a leading scientist in the field. So I want to explore all of those. And yep. it was amazing to have you outline that. I got like a few notes here that I've, I'm referring to, and <clears throat> it was in reverse order from what I just uh, articulated, but I want to, I want to tackle each of those in that order. So let's tackle this idea of, so what you just said is there are kids playing video games right now that is targeting, uh, helping their attention deficit disorder. Correct. If you're a parent, if you're a parent or a person who suffers from that right now, the very practical question is, oh my God, how do I get some of this? Because right now I'm eating Adderall by the handful, or I, I don't want to give my kid this, or, uh, or I want to, you know, explore 
things on the cusp of the future of medicine in, around the conditions that affect me and my family, for example. So let's go practical at first. How? Yeah. How do you, how do you get involved in this? You talk to your doctor. That's uh, it's, you know, the, the company and myself, we have we have several goals as well as Neuroscape is not just a new product um, or a new company, but a new field, a new type of medicine, a new way of thinking about medicine. So just like a, a parent might bring their child to the pediatrician and say, my kid's suffering in school. The teacher's like, something's up and we should get an evaluation. They get an evaluation like your child has ADHD. By these diagnostic criteria, they fit into this category. Let's say it's inattentive or combined ADHD. ADHD has like three sort of buckets, hyperactive, inattentive, or combined. More, more people than not have a bit of both. Um, our treatment is, is indicated for right now for eight to 12 year olds with inattentive or combined um, ADHD. And so the doctor then basically writes a prescription and you get a code to download it um, on your uh, device, on your own device. And then you play your medical treatment uh, for a month. A dose, a dose of our medicine is a month. And that's around 25 minutes a day, five days a week for those four weeks. Um, so that is the practical aspect of how you get it. We are currently in research studies to increase the age range of that indication. Um, that as I mentioned, question. you have to be very narrow with the FTA. It's, it's, it's the reality. Um, and so essentially, that was our phase three clinical trial population with eight to 12 year olds. We have lots of data that this has benefits in many other populations, not just within ADHD, but depression, autism, multiple sclerosis. We have new, new studies in COVID fog, basically any population that has attention deficits, which is pretty much all of them. And you might even say beyond clinical diagnosis, we're all suffering a bit of attention deficits. Our data suggests that it will have benefit, but now we have to go through that highest level of randomized controlled trial to take that to the FDA to expand the indication. But if you're a mom of a child or a dad of a child or a child that's hearing this, that a friend at school is doing this, the pathway is to go to your doctor and you get a prescription just like you would, just like you would for Adderall. Wow. I, I imagine there are a number of people who are listening to this or watching right now that are scrambling to get a hold of their doctor because just even the promise, the concept of something being so different, how would you categorize this on the level of affect or invasiveness? Because clearly that was had to be one of your interests early on, you know, like putting kids on stimulants, sure, oh, yeah. if it can mask some of the systems or the, the, the symptoms, but like, do you have any evidence about, you know, why this is so much better than pumping our kids for like playing medicine rather than taking it? Yeah, example? I mean, I think there's, there's lots of reasons. Um, one of them is that the, the changes that are induced by this treatment are targeting brain networks through the process of neuroplasticity which our data already suggests can lead, to, can lead to enduring change, actually like a change in the underlying systems that are causing these, these challenges in the world around you. Um, we're still investigating how long they could be sustained when you need a booster. You know, I mean, neuroplasticity is somewhat analogous to the changes that occur in your physical body when you exercise. And as we all know, you can have an exercise program, whether it be cardio or weight training and you get gains gradually through work 
just like this game. It's fun, but it is work. And then um, it lasts a while. And maybe you could do things in your regular daily life to help prolong that. Even if you don't, even if you stop going to the gym, you might start saying, well, I'm going to take the stairs now, walk to work. But you may also need a boost of, of that. And so we're experimenting and understanding through research how and when people need to get more doses of it. So that's one thing that's different. Stimulants work when you're taking them. And then when you stop taking them, they're not working. So they're not really leading to that change. And the data is quite, you know, um, revealing of that. The other thing is that there are lots of side effects with current medications um, across the board. In this particular condition, stimulants um, are tolerated well by some, but not by many. Um, you know, being on a basically a, a drug that alters your neurotransmitters and your, your neurochemistry for a long time. Like, this is certainly a chronic treatment. You know, we don't fully understand what that means for neurodevelopment and for outcomes. And so we're offering um, a solution that doesn't have that side effect profile. Now, so we have no serious side effects in our studies. Um, maybe that's surprising to people, maybe it's not. Um, video games are, are complicated in lots of ways, like, like everything's complicated, there's always good and bad. Um, part of, I think, what is important about our treatment is that it's very time limited. You don't play this game all day long, you play it for 25 minutes, the game will not allow you to play it for longer than that in a day. It won't allow you to play it for more than five days a week. This is how we control overdosing of our medication, because overdosing can occur for any medication. And so that's another advantage is that we can control the dose easier than someone with a, you know, a, a case of pills. We don't have no side effects. Our side effects, however, usually fall in the category of frustration, which is quite modest compared to the status quo side effects, but it's there. Um, the game is hard. It's fun. We build a lot of reward and avatar adjustment, and it's it's a delightful game in many ways, but it is it is a workout for your brain, and kids feel it, um, and some, some headaches, but for the most part, it's really minor um, or no side effects, so that's another advantage. I'd say another advantage is that um, once you have this treatment in your hands, we have a connection with you um, through your devices. And so we can do other testing and feedback, unlike a lot of medications where you're, you're sort of disconnected once you take that bottle of pills home and you have to go back to your doctor to know what's happening. We have this closed loop system where data is flowing from you into the device and back and we can um, record and ask your parents things. So. We're building out that other part of the system where it's like a full care system. So because of the data nature of this treatment, we have an opportunity to give a lot more than just the treatment. We could give feedback and do other testing. So all of these things are what makes us so excited about this as a new, new type of medicine. So of these circles that I've just sort of laid out there, one last follow-up on that first circle is you've spoken and been the inventor of this very particular medicine that is sort of like a land and expand strategy in business, right? You want to get there and then you want to expand the ages. And again, all this 360 degree approach and learning will certainly lead to further developments and, and sounds very encouraging to, to, you know, grow and, <clears throat> and uh, develop further. Give us your, take more broadly zoom out within the same circle around just digital medicine because even mm -hmm. the concept of digital medicine 
I think some people are thinking, oh, you mean I get my records in the charm portal and I go to, you know, type in my password and they, I get a text message from my doctor. And it's like, that's not really what we're talking about with digital medicine. So can you just, in a sense, to draw a exciting vector for the future for people who don't actually live in your world? Yeah. Where is, great... where is did digital medicine going? Yeah, it's a great question because the term is is not incredibly well defined. I mean, I've used it over the years myself and it could be viewed really broadly that it's everything from digital record keeping to telemedicine to um, at home diagnostics using devices to therapeutic treatments that use digital technologies to deliver them. I'd say it's not unreasonable to think of all that in, in the scope of this. Um, some would be a little more precise and say this is a digital therapeutic, um, focusing on the role of this particular device as a treatment and not just a diagnostic or you know recording tool. And so that is a little bit more specific. I, I use a different term now to describe what this is over the years of having been working on this for so long. I tend to think that the digital and even the video game are really important, they're exciting, but they are the delivery tool. The real medicine is the experience. And that is a well-founded principle called experience-dependent plasticity in neuroscience. It's, it's the basis of all learning is that experience drives plasticity. So the video game and the digital technologies are a tool. In some ways, they're like our, our pill, right? They're the delivery system of the experience, but it's the experience that changes you. And so that's the that's the opportunity. How do we use all this amazing technology that is now accessible to people in the world that might not have access to doctors or teachers um, or might not live near a medical center where they can see the best you know experts in the world? How can we use the fact that digital technology is becoming so much more affordable, pervasive, Wi-Fi is soon to be everywhere? How do we, and, and also all the massive advances in machine learning and um, and cloud-based analytics and, and big data, like all of these things have not really been harnessed to deliver better medicine for the mind and we're suffering because of it. So that's really the promise. How do we use the digital technologies to then bring experiences to people that are delightful and engaging and enjoyable and medicine is fun, but leads to these meaningful and enduring outcomes? That's, that's the vision. God, so exciting it feels it feels like a it's like a step function change right it's even if you just talk about okay so i have to go physically to this doctor and if i can get an appointment mm -hmm. and i have to wait in the room and then i have to go in there and i have spent you know 45 minutes with this person over the 20 year relationship that we've had with this person and they poke you and they stick some things on your face and in your ear and then they give you a piece of paper and then you drive across town mm -hmm. and you get a plastic bottle, mm -hmm. an orange plastic bottle full of pills. I mean, just that versus the picture that you painted around playing your medicine on your device. It's time limited. It's constrained. You can limit for overdoses. You're aware if you're not actually taking it. There's a feedback loop is is you know virtually instantaneous there's mm -hmm. reporting there's analytics in real time like mm -hmm. they just sound like completely different universes 
How exciting. It's so exciting. I mean, to me, you know, you could, I mean, I even had chills just you recounting I, it back I, to me. I did, I did too. I did too. It's like my hair on my arm is standing up and I'm like. Yeah, it's it's what I think it's sort of what, what we all dream technology would do. It's like, you know, the a little bit of the science fiction view of what the gateway and opportunities and potential that all of these devices and and software and communication and entertainment products like allow us to accomplish, but it just has not happened and not happened at all. And the technology is there and the research is there and a neuroscience understanding is there. Now it just takes, it takes a lot of shifts and, you know, essentially in the paradigm of medicine, <laughs> this is a really very different way of thinking about medicine. And that is a lot of why we, you know, this company was formed 10 years ago. We're just starting to generate revenue now and really just launching now. So why spend 10 years when you could build a video game and just put it out there, you know, as quick as possible and just say, here's another app, because we, we really do want to make a paradigm shift of what everyone thinks about medicine from the parents to the patients themselves, to the doctors, to the regulatory agencies, to the insurance companies. like. There's a lot of stakeholders here, and it's a it's a complicated process to change an institutional structure and a multi billion dollar industry of the farm industry, maybe trillion dollars, that um, that we've been sort of embedded in before we were born, Chase. I mean, this is just a system that's been going on, and now we're like, well, here's here's another system, and we don't want you to think about this as alternative. That's not cool, right? Like it sounds fun and edgy, but like alternative means that most people do not have access to it. We want mainstream medicine. This should just be standard medical treatment. And um, as you said, you have to start focused as as a business, as a startup, as a new product, a new category in medicine. This was a de novo approval by the FDA, meaning that there is no predicate. There's nothing that we relied on to get this approval. We had to start from scratch. It's a long process, but now we have the beachhead. We will have data, real world data, not just randomized control trial data, real world data of children taking this medicine over the next couple of years where we can see all the um, you know positive benefits that it has in their lives and how we can really scale this up and really address all this need but it is just the beginning and not just for Achille, but many, many other companies out there that I talked all the time. Many of them are watching Achille because um, it's, it's, it's hard work and it's long and they're like, okay, um, if you pass these hurdles, which we are, and we still have some in front of us, then, then we're in here. And you know, there's other things like virtual reality and other conditions and other types of games and even non-games. So it's just the beginning of a whole new field, but it is immensely exciting. All right, I'm just gonna we're gonna put a pin in that because that is a big thing to marinate on, and it is it is so exciting, and this is part of why, again, I wanted to have you back on the show because it's in just five years, it's come a long ways, and now there's it's yes. actually happening, it's and actually yeah, and as a vector for the future, you know, this, as you said, a beachhead, it it sort of signals hope and a new paradigm in a world that, frankly, could use a new paradigm shift. I mean, we used to place leeches on people's faces 
And then <laughs> before we just before we did the whole doctor thing, or if mm-hmm. you're watching Game, Game of Thrones or mm-hmm. Return of the Dragon, you see the doctors <laughs> taking care of people. And then it's this uh, relationship that you don't have in the yellow bo- or that orange bottle of pills. And the future sounds so much more exciting than either of those. So thank you. Uh, to, congratulations again to put a pin in that. Now I want to direct our attention to this other. That was a double entendre accidentally there. This other circle that I sort of had it going in my mind as you were sharing um, your background and your opening salvo there. And this is the concept of attention. Mm. Now, I I will take 60 seconds and describe my fascination with attention. I'll say my mine and my wife's. My wife has been studying attention uh, through Eastern traditions Mm. for a long time. She Mm -hmm. studied with Ram Dass and... Just the other night, we were with Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. You know, this is an Eastern tradition of how you are able to direct your attention. And my, I'll say mine and my wife's beliefs, I've drafted off her largely, but it's when you really boil it down, all we have in this life, all we have is our attention. What, How we direct our attention has direct consequences on how we experience the world. If you're looking at how beautiful the tree out the window is, you know, placing your attention on this gently moving leaves and the light filtering through them and how beautiful that is, you will have one experience. And if you think about the state of the world in a pandemic, political upheaval, war, you know, you're directing your attention to something else, then you will have a very different experience. So Mm -hmm. at a super fundamental level, my belief is that attention and where you're placing your attention, there's no such thing as the future. Mm-hmm. That is not a real thing. The past, gone. Mm-hmm. All we have is attention in this moment. Mm-hmm. So you are working, again, selfishly wanted to have you back on the show because I'm obsessed with attention. You have chosen to focus attention here and you explicated very clearly why you chose You know, people with attention deficit and the age group but I got a hunch that you care about attention more broadly. Mm-hmm. So I just gave you this sort of laundry list or my my baggage, if you will, mm-hmm. carrying into attention. Can you share me what yours is with, with, with me? What yours is like, how do you think about attention and why it, it clearly matters to you because of all of the shit in the world to study yeah. you chose attention? Yes. Why? Well, you said it perfectly. So that that saves me at least 60 seconds of, of not just <laughs> echoing what you said. Although, I, you know, I will highlight it that from a neuroscience perspective, um, my, you know, I've been doing neuroscience research for 30 years now that attention is fundamental to everything that our brain does. Um, and, and there's so many different types of attention. I could easily talk a, an hour about attention, all the different times, top down and bottom up, sustained attention, selective attention. And it's just uh, infinitely fascinating how you, how you move attention and how you divide attention. I mean, it's really an incredibly fascinating um, topic. Uh, we're learning a lot about how it works from a neural perspective uh, with, with human cognitive neuroscience research, both functional imaging and other sophisticated ways of challenging people and seeing how their attention either fragments or, 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 or steadies. Um, but what you described is really, you know, completely consistent with my view that how we 
paint the world in our minds, how we perceive is guided by our attention, how we deploy it. And that then creates our memories and forms our personality and our uh, you know, emotional landscape, our ability to make decisions, the way that we care about each other and ourselves, um, the way we think about the future, all of it is driven by attention. And there are many forces in the world that are actually, you know, somewhat designed to direct your attention to them and thus fragment your attention from what you may have wanted to direct it to. And so our modern world is not the not the world that our brains evolved in. And we have developed a set of attentional systems to interact with the world that is very different from the current world. And so it makes perfect sense why many people are struggling with attention right now, not just children with ADHD, but essentially everyone to some degree. Um, I wrote a whole book on this topic, The Distracted Mind, and, and really an evolutionary perspective, ancient brains in a high-tech world. And um, I, I wrote a lot of the neuroscience and, and my, my colleague, Larry Rosen, who's a psychologist who really works in the field at like how kids' attentions are really being impacted by their, their interactions with digital media, um, really tried to paint a big picture. And so, you know, just to summarize, attention is critical for how we perform, how we live, how we think, how we feel, and when it is pathologically impacted by some condition. And I would say that every single neurological or psychiatric condition that impacts your brain diminishes your attentional ability, all of them. I'd, be, I'd, I'd love someone to call me out on one that doesn't because I just don't think there is. You could just basically Put the condition in PubMed or Google Scholar, and then put the word attention, and you will find articles showing that people with that condition are suffering um, attention deficits. And that's because attention is a widespread network phenomena of our brain. And so if there's an insult or challenge anywhere in your brain, it'll diminish attention. And so once you have attention not being deployed at its highest level, there's a cascade of negative consequences that reach across your entire life. Maybe how you're functioning at work, how you sleep, how you interact with the people you love, um, the level of performance that you're able to attain in anything, whether it's your health or your, um, you know, your, your interactions with uh, your employees and, or your, your coworkers. Um, and so, to me, improving attention is like the base of the pyramid, right? Like all these other important blocks, um, memory, decision-making, emotional regulation, empathy, compassion, imagination, creativity, all sitting on top of that attentional foundation. So if we could build a better foundation, we could make a better brain and make a better life for us. Mm. Okay. So two other pieces in this circle. One piece, you, you, you said in probably the most uh, scientifically appropriate way that there are other things that are competing for our attention and directing it. it you, you said it in such a way that did not imply any nefarious sort <laughs> of uh, underpinnings, but I know that you know that is the scientist in you. I believe that is a scientist in you. I will therefore take the position of 
there are things that suck that are tearing our attention to pieces in the modern world. And they're using this sort of combination of psychology and the understanding of our attention to almost uh, weaponizing it sounds a little bit aggressive because that only implies nefarious. I think there's, you know, they want to make their product successful. And so they want to attract your attention and hold your attention and sell either your attention or sell you a product that you are consuming with your attention. What, uh, are you scared for this? Is this, is this as a big a deal as we think it is? And is that one of the reasons you're working here? Yeah, I think it is a big deal. And, you know, as I said, this is not the environment that our brains evolved in. We did not have, I mean, look, we always had distracting elements, right? You might be foraging in the field and a predator, you know, that's like the, the classic that all animals face is like your attention is divided, but it's like to save your life or, you know, it, and it, there just wasn't as many information streams that were so cleverly directed at pulling you. And so we have a challenge. Our species has a challenge now is how do we um, value this ability to have control over how, where, and when we deploy our attention? And how do we regain that control? And there are some ancient, you know, traditions, like you described, uh, that, you know, meditation is really attention training. If you really want to, I mean, there's so many things it is, and I'm a big fan. And Jack Cornfield is, is a collaborator of mine and a dear friend, and we've worked together on projects. We've worn a paper together, and um, I really, you know, see the incredible value beyond attention. But at its core, you know, when you start with concentrated breath focus meditation, it's an attention exercise because you can't even go further to like meta and loving kindness and other aspects that mindfulness practices can deliver to you if you can't focus your attention, right? So yeah. it's like building block number one. And so, you know, for thousands of years, we've clearly known that this was a key part of what needs to be done in order to live a high quality life, nevertheless, an enlightened life or even a life free of suffering. And that was before we've had social media, right? It was always there that we there was some value around the world. Cult, many cultures have independently arrived at their own um, approaches to achieving practices of attention. And so, yeah, I am worried about how things are now. I'm especially worried with children and not just children themselves, but even how parents interact with children. And so I think that this A needs to be valued more and we need to have clever approaches, both behavioral approaches of how we interact with our digital worlds and then hopefully new solutions like what we're working on at Neuroscape and Achille to actually flip the story around and show how digital technology when thoughtfully designed, rigorously validated and then you know deployed in a responsible way can actually lead to an enhancement of what makes us human. That's the goal. That's that's my dream of technology is that it is a it is really an enhancement technology, not just an offloading or a distraction, uh, but a way that we can evolve our minds. That's really that's the dream. Mm. Well, thank you for going to that place around uh you know Jack. I mentioned my wife Kate, Jack, mm -hmm. Kate study with Jack and Tara and mm -hmm. um, done their done you know learned under their tutelage and 
all of that is so impressive. My own experience in life has, you know, as a 10, 10 year meditator, um, has given me that empirical experience. Do you feel like that is, um, I guess, how do you manage this line between being a neuroscientist and MD, PhD, understanding there are like very clearly scientifically proven benefits to meditation. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's essentially training your attention, mm -hmm. you know, whether you move the attention when it wanders, because not it's if it wanders, it's when it wanders, mm -hmm. you bring that it back to the, bring it back to the breath mm -hmm. and bring it back to um, the mantra or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, do you believe in it? And can you sort of, um, you know, I'm not looking for you to cite a bunch of studies here, but give us um, give us your two cents on that for people who either are meditating and you know need a little bit of validation or who are, or who don't understand that it has, you know, scientifically validated benefits that you can or, or can't, if you can't attest to it, don't. Yeah. I, I feel really comfortable talking about this now more so than I did in 2017, because since then, so remember, like I, I I'm wearing two hats here and this could be confusing. Mm -hmm. So I am the founder of Achille and Achille has one product focused on ADHD to improve attention abilities in these children. It will be expanding. That is a, major part of my life. I am the inventor of that technology. I'm, you know, part of that company since its foundation. Super excited about it. My day job actually is working hundred, you know, I'm hundred percent professor at UCSF running Neuroscape. And at Neuroscape, we don't have one technology. We don't focus on one population. We are really trying to push the envelope of, of this idea of experiential medicine delivered by digital technologies. And so we have many, many games, some of them, you know, and they all really have in common in that I looked at real world experiences that have tons of data, even thousands of years of data showing that they have benefits on us. And then saying, can we find some active ingredient there that we could put into a closed loop, meaning an adaptive personalized digital technology, and then run a careful research study and show that it can improve performance and then record brain activity and show how it can and why. Basically what we did with NeuroRacer that became Endeavor. One of them uses physical fitness, motion capture, physiological heart recordings. We just had a paper on nature aging showing that that benefited um, attention in older adults. We have another paper that's coming out in a couple of weeks. There'll be some good press around that showing that rhythm and a music game that we created with um, collaborators like Mickey Hart from the Grateful Dead lead to benefits in working memory. We have another paper coming out with that same, uh, a different version of the game showing that improves reading in children. And we have a game that takes place in virtual reality called Labyrinth that we had a paper since we last talked that shows that it improves memory abilities in older adults. They navigate a 3D landscape that keeps getting more complicated as they manage to find their way through it. And then we have a game called Metatrain. So that was like a long buildup because I wanted to yeah, show I love you it. all the things that are going on that I'm so excited about. None of these are with a company um, or our products. These are research studies, but these are these are the seeds that I think will be the future of experiential medicine once you know we get Achilles through through its path with this first product. But at Neuroscape, we have all these, and Metatrain is a project that I started seven years ago with Jack Hornfield. I had an idea. We were introduced. I presented it to him. I was super nervous that he was going to think that this was like totally inappropriate, disrespectful to the ancient tra traditions of, you know, meditation practice. He's 
that spirit rock. He's amazing. And I was like, I have an idea for like a digital version of meditation that uses a closed loop algorithm. And I was like holding my breath. He's like, I really like that idea. And so we worked on it together and um, he's an author on our first paper. And so since we've last talked, we've had three publications on Metatrain um, and in great journals. Our first paper was in Nature Human Behavior on Healthy Young Adults. We had a paper in Nature Translational Psychiatry that was published um, showing um, the benefits in children with at mostly adolescents with adverse life events. And that was done in India, um, both of those. And then we had a study showing really deep dive of what's happening in the brain. We have a third paper, a third um, randomized control trial in older adults showing the benefits as well. And what we see across all of these studies in common is that they all improved. This is just after six weeks of playing this game. Now, I, I don't want to say that this is magic meditation. It basically is meditation um, in the in the traditional concentrative breath focused meditation focus on your breath be aware of where your mind and attention is if you find your attention wandering notice it return it to your breath non-judgmentally clap pretty pretty basic concentrative meditation instructions that you would get if you went on a meditation retreat like a vipassana retreat what makes this metatrain unique is that you start with just having to do that for 10 seconds and then at the end of 10 seconds you get a cue, this is all done on an iPad or a phone, were you successful? Did you focus on your breath or did your mind wander? It's actually interesting at the beginning, you're like, oh, what? you actually don't really understand where your mind is, nevertheless, whether or not you were successful at holding it. So it's like you're learning two things. One, you're learning to actually hold your attention to your breath. The other, you're learning to understand where your mind is focused. And what we find is that most people that are naive, that are not meditation practitioners, when you do this for half an hour, so if you say yes, I held my focus on my breath, then you get 14 seconds. If you say no, then you get seven seconds. And so you keep, so that's the closed loop. You keep getting as you can focus and notice that you are focusing without being interrupted by something either going on in your mind or something external that pulled your attention away, you get more time. If you fail, you get less time. And so it sort of thresholds you like a hearing test would do in terms of how long can you actually hold your attention to your breath without a distraction. And what we find is that most people that uh, do this over the course of a half an hour wind up with just 10 to 15 seconds. That's it. After doing this for six weeks, most people are over two minutes. So you can build the skill to hold your attention to your breath through this practice, which you know, in its essence is essentially the same as, as many traditional concentrative meditation practices, whether the focus is your breath or a mantra or, or a body scan. The cool thing that we find in our research studies is that just doing that for six weeks leads to an improvement in, in attention when documented in a laboratory test of attention abilities, that people are able to sustain their attention in a very different environment when they're focusing their visual attention on a rare stimuli that's in a really boring task. So we show that in all these different populations, we recorded brain activity to show what is changing in the brain that allows you to have this better attention abilities after this meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And it's really, as we hypothesized, the networks and connectivity in the most evolved part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, right up here, which allows you to direct your attention based on your goals, that its function and its connectivity is heightened after this practice. 
And most recently, this is unpublished data, um, so I'll, I'll frame it as such, but our newest study on older adults show not only did it improve attention, that's the third population that we showed that in, but that it actually also improves their ability to regulate their stress responses, shown in the lab, and it actually also increases the telomere length which is a cellular marker of aging. So it caps on the end of, of, the, of your genes. And so, I mean, it's amazing. We're publishing, we're writing up that publication now. Um, so take it for what it's worth, but hopefully it'll, it'll be out soon. But, you know, long story short, this is our own contribution from Neuroscape and, and Jack about how we can take these ancient practices and use digital technologies to deliver them in a way that's very accessible to people because you sort of baby step into the process and show in very careful, these are all placebo controlled randomized trials that we can lead to benefits, even now in some of our data benefits that we show sustain a year later. So yes, we're excited about MetaTrain because it fits with the story that we've been telling about the promise of digital technology to deliver experiences as medicine. But it also speaks to meditation in general, because it's essentially a traditional meditation practice just delivered in a slightly different, more personalized way. And, and then I just want to be really clear here. This is what I just described to you as my own research contribution that we just have been publishing. But there is a large body of evidence from really Im impressive studies and researchers uh, from around the world that contribute and converge on this same message that this practice, which is work, like all of this is, of learning and learning your mind, first of all, that was what was most salient to me when I was a participant in this study, is that I was like, not just learning how to hold my attention, I was learning where my attention was, I actually did not realize how unaware I was of where my attention was focused until I did this practice. So you learn, A, what's going on in here, and then you learn how to control it based upon your own goals. And I will add, I will editorialize, again, first of all, thank you, but I will editorialize that the, the ability to direct your attention toward your own goals is as wide ranging as it sounds. Mm -hmm. This goes back to my sort of opening about attention. Like, if you wonder how valuable attention is, it's pretty much everything. So if you're <laughs> interested in, if your goal is better mental health, and you can choose to direct your attention towards things that you know, even if it's toward the breath and the result is that you can manage your stress responses better. And like that, that is basically equals mental health, you know, like it, yeah. And, or, 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 or physical health or, yeah, or, or the quality health. of your relationships or how safely you drive or I mean everything. Yeah. Li literally everything performance literally. people, you know, a lot of the people that are in this community want to be able, want to be a better creator, want to understand their, you know, that uh, very inward journey about, you know, tapping into their, the ability to learn from their experiences and share that with others in a, in a meaningful way. Like all this stuff yeah. has at its, at its foundation, attention. And so if you, if, if you're, if you're wondering the role that attention can play in making your life better, uh, you just heard it from here from yeah. Dr. Adam. Hey. Maybe if I could add one more personal piece love that, that I'm comfortable sharing, not as a scientist, but as a new dad. Um, so I, I have a 20-month-old daughter. I'm pretty old dad. I'm 53 years old. But um, I, I want to be present with her, right? I want, to, I want to be there, not just physically, but attentionally. And so it's been a really interesting journey over these last 20 months with her to 
you know, not just, you know, talk the talk, which I just did, but to really walk it and really, you know, really practice this presence and be with her as she develops. And, you know, I spend every morning with her. It's my, my, my dad job. I, I wake her up or she wakes me up and, and we spend the first, usually almost hour of the day together, the two of us. And not to bring my phone in the room. It's really tempting. I'm sure I have a lot of emails there. Um, and really just be in the moment and and appreciate and pay pay really careful attention to what's going on. And the, the reason I bring this up is because I, I learned something that I did not learn from my research, but sitting there with my daughter and trying to essentially have a mindfulness practice with her. I realized that even when I was paying attention to the moment, I was still often thinking about the future. I was often thinking about, and when is she going to like start speaking or why doesn't she walk as well as I wish she was walking right now? Or why, when is she going to get out of this like sort of behavioral state she is now of complaining a lot? And, and I realized that even though I was actually present and focusing on her, I was still not in the moment. And I, I, I caught myself and I was like, oh, this is not really the goal. The goal is to be fully here and not just be attentionally present, but to have gratitude for the moment. That was sort of the breakthrough that I had. I was like, just enjoy and be grateful to what is happening in the present. Don't just focus on the attention, uh, your attention on the present, but feel gratitude in the moment. And that was a major paradigm shift for me personally, when I recognized that attention was not just about focus at its highest level, or presence wasn't just about focus, but it was also about gratitude. And that really made my relationship even like move to the next level. So I'll just share that little personal oh, uh, experience. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so grateful and I love it. There's something as a human when, you know, I imagine obviously at 20 months, your daughter is, doesn't have the tools yet to express back to you, mm. but we all do as adults, we have been paid what I'll call proper attention to before. And it feels different. Mm-hmm. If and this is the gift that my wife Kate has. You are if you are in her presence, she is like, and it is, it is very. There's something incredibly special about truly having someone listen to you, mm-hmm. and that is, I, I am making an extension now to my role here in this conversation. My I got better at this part of my life by just being able to be, and it's hard. Because you can't be thinking the next question or the next mm-hmm. point, or like it's very, very mm-hmm. <laughs> difficult. So <laughs> the same challenges that, but but I, I personally feel different. I can apply my attention mm-hmm. in these moments, I love that. and it just makes a it makes for a better conversation. So mm-hmm. whether it's your twenty year old daughter or our conversation, or I gotta keep using my wife Kate as an example because she's just a uh, super genius at this. It is it's a special thing our attention because it's all we have in this earth on this planet Mm -hmm. last topic is this third circle and i'm just going to call it just sort of general the the abilities of the mind neuroplasticity Mm. the role the role that that you know we play inputting into our mental health and Mm -hmm. obviously you've you've already cited once in this conversation we've just gone through a pandemic which was extremely challenging Mm -hmm. we saw all, all kinds of mental health conditions on the rise um, I'll say maybe even catastrophic, I don't know, 
the definition of catastrophe or scientifically how you'd measure it, but it seemed like everybody, a lot of people that I knew were having a very tough time. So if you could help us understand that we have at our disposal this tool between our ears and i consider it a tool because we mm -hmm. you can train it to work for you and if you mm -hmm. do not train it it is not guaranteed to work for you because it is not there to keep you happy it's there to keep you alive mm -hmm. so so tell us the story that you apply to the potential mm -hmm. of this this thing between our ears so people yeah. can decide that they want to pay attention like talk to us about the value of of doing the work between mm -hmm. our ear uh, yeah. our ears it's great great question I'm, I'm excited to talk about it 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 is what drives everything i do whether you know it's working with achille neuroscape advising for other companies doing podcasts giving talks all of it is is directed at this one goal of understanding how we can harness a fundamental property of how our brain works, which is called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, um, in order to improve our function and improve our lives. That's everything. And, and the digital technology is like a really clever way of doing that. And it's timely and it's I think it could change the world. But if the brain did not change itself in response to experience, I would not be doing any of this. Like that is the foundational aspect of it. And I do want to point out that for a long time, you know, for 100, 100 years of neuroscience, we didn't really understand this property very well. We thought the brain did obviously change during development, but then it was pretty static or basically just declined the rest of our lives. And undoubtedly, all of our color of our hair, the density of you know, calcium in your bones, your brain, there's changes that occur with aging that are clear. But the capacity of your brain to improve its function through interactions with the environment, a property in neuroscience that we call experience-dependent neuroplasticity, is retained throughout our lives. And it is always available to everyone to lead to benefits. Now, that's sort of the foundational principle that I don't think any neuroscientist would disagree with. Where it gets complicated is, you know, the whole, the devil's in the details. How do you do that? How accessible is that it, is that to people? How do, are the changes that occur meaningful? Are they enduring? Um, you know, that is really what I have been dedicating my life to is to showing that we can translate like this this is a term that we use in medicine and in healthcare and you know in, in my world a lot translational medicine but it's more like almost like uh like something that you strive for but no one really knows how to do like you want to move it from the academic from the intellectual exercise of understanding the brain to an actual approach to improve our lives. If not, then why are we doing all this? Like it has to be a core goal. And it is my core goal is to translate the fundamental neuroscientific principles of experience dependent plasticity into approaches that actually have meaningful benefits in our lives. And that is a tall order, but that's essentially what I'm focused on. And how we do that or how I do that and my team at Neuroscape and Achille and other many other groups that, that I work with is to use the properties of experience, the 
challenges, the rewards, the different type of sensory stimuli that are available, that are elements of experience, and figure out how to deliver them in a way that you can engage in deeply, that constantly challenge you, that lead to change, um, and then do the research and show that it actually does what you, what you think it's going to do. That's like the two-part process. That's why what we do takes so long. We could spend three years developing MetaTrain because it's based upon all these principles of concentrative meditation integrated with closed-loop technologies, which we do of reward and, and challenge adaptivity, and then be done. But no, then we do a three-year research study and then publish it and show what it actually does. So that's the foundational approach is to use the, the lessons from neuroscience that teach us what aspects of interaction, what aspects of experience are most meaningful? How do they vary from person to person? How could we deliver them in a way that leads to the change and then show that it that it actually does what it does. So that's that's a big part of what I do. All those games that I talked about from NeuroRacer, BeepSeeker, Coherence, Engage, Labyrinth, Rhythmicity, I mean, I didn't even, MetaTrain, I didn't even describe all of those. They're all built on the same approach. How do we create what we call a closed loop? And this is an important part that I just wanna pause on. I usually do this earlier, but a closed loop experience, which is like a, a term that is not frequently used, but one that I like to use, a closed loop experience is one where all the elements of the experience, what you see, hear, smell, feel, you're um, challenged, how the reward changes, are all being adapted based upon what is happening to you in the moment. Unlike a real world experience where that's not true, they're open loop, they're, they're dissociated. Maybe you're influencing one thing in your environment, but most things are not being controlled. We create an experience where all the elements are built for you and changing with you as you change. And that's what all these games do to some degree, not to the highest degree, not to where we're going now. Like our newest experiments are taking this full science fiction, but how do we both understand what's happening to you in the moment? So right, in order to create a closed loop, we have to know what's going on with you. How do we do that? Well, the easiest way to do it is just to use your devices like what Achille does, where your accelerometer and your tap screen tell us how much you're paying attention, how fast you are, where your attention's directed. But we can also use multimodal biosensing, which is what we now do at Neuroscape, where we record hundreds of electrodes, hundreds of signals of data from throughout your body. We could take that and feed it back to you with a tablet or a phone, because that makes a ton of sense because everyone already has those and the need is so great, or in a full sensory immersive environment, which is also what we're creating at Neuroscape, where you see, hear, smell, and feel these rich environments that are changing as you change. That's the approach that we're taking to bring this experiential medicine conceptual basis to the next level. Now, all of this is a very complicated data cycle, essentially, because all this data from you is flowing into a processor, a computer processor, essentially, that's then making its own decisions about how to adjust all of these stimuli. And so that is the opportunity for machine learning and artificial intelligence to really both interpret in real time this very complex multimodal data set, and then to guide a multi-sensory experience and reward cycles that lead to these outcomes. That's what we're working on right now. That's the sort of the, the promise of using digital technologies, both on the recording and the sensory side to drive experience-dependent plasticity. So foundationally, 
neuroplasticity is not just, uh, you know, it's not something we casually throw around. It is known fact that your brain evolves and adapts biologically, neurochemically, uh, in, in structurally. Any, yeah. Structurally. It's like that's everything that's bananas to me that your brain changes structurally on the fly. It's changing then, right now structurally. Right. Okay. So here's the exclamation point, and I'm going to ask you to do something likely uncomfortable um, because what I know about scientists in general, and you particularly, you're so careful. You, you choose your words very carefully. But how does this translate to the person who's you know sitting in traffic listening to this right now? How does it translate to someone who's you know on a walking path or you know at their desk at work right now? How what do they do, or is it just is it the hope because your your work is so far you know into the future and as you've articulated many, many times very eloquently this is a long process and you know the thing you started 13 years ago it's just now hitting the street but is there is there advice and this is where you're going to get comfortable that you would you what what advice do you give for someone who's yeah. paying attention is it do what you yeah. can with what you have is it meditate is it yeah you know, stand by stand by for cool stuff coming down the pipe like yeah i what I, what's I, the call I to feel, action i feel less uncomfortable about this now because i have an approach to dealing with this question is that oh good i'm not like a self-help guru type guy right i'm not gonna tell you like these are the six steps to live live a better life I, i'm not i'm never doing that and it's just not what what i do or what i feel comfortable doing but i can tell you about what i do so, you know, I am a person, not just a scientist that has a, a life and a family. I am completely in love with like, I have, you know, the new iPhone and the new AirPods. Like I love technology. I use it all. I'm on social media. Like I'm not like living on some mountaintop. I am here <laughs> with everyone else as susceptible to all of the pulls of my attention as everyone else is. Um, but I have, you know, certainly a adapted my life in the moment, not just waiting for all the cool things that we're creating, because who wants to wait, right? I mean, life is, is happening right now. We've been talking about that. Everyone has their job, their families, their goals right now. And I really believe that we will produce amazing tools to help people. And that's what we're doing, but it's hard work. And we're only going to do it one way, completely rigorous. That's the only way that we're going to do it and you'll get it, but it's going to take a while. That's true. But all of the things I talked about are accessible, maybe just not as accessible um, as we will make them, uh, but to people to to bring into their into their into their daily you know lives and their practices. I mean, the first thing is just being aware of where your mind is, where your attention is, having an appreciation for the fact that if you're not controlling your attention, it's likely someone else is. And that if you can't control it, the consequences are broad and recognize what they are. So like step one, it's just meta-awareness, understanding you and your brain and your mind and how it interacts with the world around it. What are you doing that you don't like doing that you're not maybe not even aware of? Are you allowing technology to control you and not you control it? Because that's that's a major problem, right? And so step one is awareness and just, you know, trying to wrap your head around how you want to live. Step two is harder than that, even. It's because, you know, someone's like, I don't want to smoke anymore. I want to work out more. I don't want to eat unhealthy food. I want to stop smoking. You know, it's like, okay, 
accomplishing that is far from trivial. And I don't mean to diminish how much work it is, uh, but step one is to know that you want to change and that you recognize the value of attention and, and all these things we're talking about. But, you know, number two is finding either practices, whether it's physical fitness, which shows a lot of benefit from the research, meditation practices, um, just slowing down and pausing, changing your behaviors through new habit formation. So, you know, and again, these are not advice that I'm giving. This is what I practice and have worked on myself, sometimes successfully, sometimes less successfully. But, you know, like, when you're really doing something that's important, and that might be uh, you're writing something or doing something at work, or maybe it's just a conversation, or maybe it's just being there with your daughter, like try to do one thing at a time. It's really hard to do one thing at a time when you're in the habit of doing multiple things. But if you practice it, you will get better at it, and it will get more enjoyable, um, right? Like the first day, like you decide, I want to run a marathon, like it's going to suck, right? It's not easy. But somehow over time, even what was what what, what is once punishing and unacceptable becomes enjoyable. Enjoyable. It's the same thing with single tasking. Like if you get in the practice of doing it and really being present, you will struggle, but then you will hit a moment where you're like, oh, that feels good also. And then it becomes more sustainable. So, you know, that that's all the, the things that I try to bring into, into my life. And it definitely has improved my life. Um, so, you know, we're, we're speaking in, in, in a lot of futuristic, um, terms here because that's my job is to build the future that's what i try to do but every one of these things can be accomplished in daily life if you if you try and and really um have the the intentions of bringing them into your life hmm. it is always a treat you are so <laughs> articulate and uh an hour of your time is like worth it's like dog years right it's like worth seven <laughs> Seven normal podcasts right there of uh, <laughs> density and uh, and hope and practical applications. And just, I'll say, I'll, I'll again, another double entendre, just the awareness of um, what's possible with this one precious life that we have. So thank you so much. Congratulations on Thanks, Achilles Chris. going public. Uh, are there, and again, on, on your lab uh, a formal lab now that's a it's a it's a center department center yeah, wow center, neuroscape yeah wow yeah, um we have like 45 my, people 10 faculty so it's a big group wow my how things can change in just a yeah. few years C congratulations is there anywhere you would like to direct our audience's attention uh aside from the, all of the topics that we've been talking about where how can they learn more about you or where would you point them yeah, well, I, I, I created a website during COVID called Ghazali.com. It was, my name is very rare. I was able to actually get it as a URL. And essentially it's like an aggregator of, you know, Neuroscape Achille, other projects I work on, my photography. I'm a nature photographer as well. That's a, a commonality between Chase and I. And um, so that's a good place. If you want to be more direct, uh, Neuroscape has its own website. You could go there at neuroscape.ucsf.edu. That's the whole research center. And then achilleinteractive.com to learn about Achilles, um, but there's also links on my site if you wanted to start there. And yeah, the, you know, our, our publications are up there. This podcast will be up there. You know, we try. I try to share both the scientific content as well as you know, great conversations like we're having, where I get to like sort of break it all down. So I I thank you also for giving me the opportunity to talk about this and and create questions. And I really, I actually really enjoyed this. So thank you. Awesome. And for those wondering, Ghazali is G-A-Z-Z-A-L-E-Y. 
Am I right on that one? You are correct. Memory. Okay. That, that's good. it. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine it. if I misspelled that? We would have to record that. <laughs> that's it. Uh, thanks again, friend. It is an absolute, it's a treat to spend time with you. And to everyone out there in the world, uh, you heard it from Dr. Adam, where you can go to learn more. Um, I've, it would also be valuable to go back and listen to our previous episode where he talked about, the, you know, the, the book, The Distracted Mind, uh, also incredibly valuable, but uh, do dive deeper into this and what an inspiring future we have. There's so much potential and we just got to get our shit together. <laughs> Thanks again, Adam. I appreciate you and to everybody out there in the world signing off from Miros Julie and Dr. Ghazali. Uh, until next time we bid you adieu. All right. That's all for today's show. But Hey, before you go, I want to say thank you for listening and also for engaging with the platform, wherever you consume the show, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. Thank you so much. Reviews help a ton if you're willing to. And I want you to let you know in an effort to continue the topics we explore here on the show, or if you have questions, you can always direct your comments to me on all my social feeds. I'm at Chase Jarvis everywhere, but also I will see your message quicker if you shoot me a text. That's right. I can text directly with you. The best way is to hit me up at 206-309-5177. I get a lot of texts, so I can't always get back to you right in the moment. But trust me, those are my thumbs on the other end of the keyboard. So I want to say thanks so much, and I look forward to engaging with you soon.